This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Jacqueline Woodson discusses her new novel for adults, Another Brooklyn. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot presents this year's rankings of the world's largest publishers. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And here to join me to uh, discuss this list is our Features Editor, Carolyn Juris. Hello, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. Always nice to have you here. Thank you for keeping me company while Mark's away. So uh, first, I want to talk about some of the top books on the fiction side of things. Uh, on the hardcover fiction list, uh, number two is Sting by Sandra Brown. Um, I've, when I first saw this on the list, I thought it was a new book written by Sting. Yeah, which, I thought it was a book about Sting. <laughs> which uh, would have been great. Um, but we gave it a starred review, so apparently whatever this is, is also great. Uh, we say it's an exceptional romantic thriller. Um, Sandra Brown, obviously, a, a long time, many time bestseller. And uh, she she knows exactly how to make this kind of story work. We call it a spirited contest of wills and wiles between a hand some hired killer and his beautiful target. And uh, we say Brown handles the romance with her usual panache and adds some nifty plot twists that will keep readers guessing. So that's number two, a little bit lower. Uh, down at number four is Curious Minds, a night and moon novel by Janet Ivanovich and Faith Sutton. And uh, this is a series launch. Um, the two of them co-authored Wicked Charms uh, last year. And uh, this one introduces an eccentric millionaire and a junior analyst at a mega bank. Uh, so uh, that uh, sounds like there's going to be plenty of financial shenanigans going on in this plot. And uh, there are sly references to uh, The Shadow, the pulp hero, and to the creators of Ellery Queen as the authors send their odd couple on a harrowing journey that leads with zany humor from the Federal Reserve Gold Vault in Manhattan to top secret Area 51 in Nevada. So lots and lots going on in there and uh, definitely one for uh, all of Ivanovich's fans. At number nine, we have Damaged by Lisa Scottolina, and uh, this is her 15th Rosado and Denunzio novel. Uh, we also gave this a starred review, um, said it's outstanding, uh, and the tensions mount until the story concludes with a satisfying, unexpected twist. In this case, uh, the heroine of the story, Mary Denunzio, uh, who's a partner in a Philadelphia law firm, takes on a heartbreaking case involving a dyslexic fifth grader who's being bullied and getting no support. And uh, soon she finds herself pitted against a diabolical attorney whose name is literally Nick Machiavelli. So um, not not a subtle book, but a strong one. And uh, definitely if you're into this kind of legal thriller, uh, it's uh, it's one for you. 400,000 copy announced first printing. Very impressive. And uh, there it is in our top 10 bestsellers. So well on its way to selling those 400,000 copies. And finally, uh, down at number 14, I wanted to note The Last Days of Night by Graham Moore, uh, the author of the Sherlockian. And uh, again, he turns to historical events for the basis of a thrilling plot tackling the war of the currents, um, the, the fight of whether uh, the world would run on alternating or direct current, which doesn't sound terribly interesting <laughs> unless you're uh, an electrician. But um, yeah, it, it was really quite a battle between uh, Thomas Edison Nikola Tesla and uh, a protagonist who I believe is a fictional creation for this book, uh, who's a, a Columbia lawyer and uh, you know, looking at, at the research and the facts, but not at all used to the ways that uh, people push one another around when there's lots of money on the line. Uh, our review says the plot starts off slowly and uh, the tempo picks up as events within the court begin to unfold. Moore's extensive research is apparent. And you were saying something about uh, there possibly being a movie deal for this. Yeah, the book is set to be adapted for film uh, starring Eddie Redmayne. Mm -hmm. uh, Graham Moore is actually an Oscar winning uh, 
screenplay writer. He wrote the adapted screenplay for The Imitation Game. And that same year, Redmayne uh, took home the Best Actor Oscar for The Theory of Everything. So they both appear to be sort of science-y, math-y, nerdy guys. Sounds, sounds like a good time. And uh, you know, nerd cinema is really its own thing now. So, uh, <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So tell us a little bit about what's happening elsewhere on the bestseller list. Okay, over on uh, hardcover nonfiction, we have a new number one, uh, The Girl with the Lower Back Tattoo by uh, comedian Amy Schumer. Great title. Very good title. Uh, that sold almost 40,000 uh, copies in hardcover, so a pretty strong start. Then down at number seven, we have Art of Coloring Disney Villains, which uh, obviously is the latest in the coloring book trend. I love uh, I love that Disney villains get their own coloring book. Like well, that seems so delightfully specific. <laughs> well, and the villains are pretty fabulous. I mean, Corella Deville working that black and white crayon. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and this is not the only Disney coloring book on. And let's remember, this is the hardcover nonfiction list. Usually, we see um, mm. these books uh, in trade paperback. Uh, so you know, this retails for sixteen bucks. Not not bad with uh, seven thousand sold this week. Uh, sorry, as I was saying, the art of coloring Disney animals, also somewhat specific, um, if perhaps less colorful. Oh, or, or more. Or I mean, those less nice, sinister anyway. Those nice blue bluebirds <laughs> around Cinderella's head. Um, that book has been out for a few weeks and uh, has to date sold about 31,000 copies. This week, it's at number 18 with about 3,000 sold. And then the only other new book on our list this week, actually, is it's a book called Be Still and Know, and that is a daily devotional. Mm -hmm. And uh, that sold about 3,500 copies this week. And uh, devotionals are, I did not know this, a, a pretty big deal in the publishing world. They're uh, small passages meant to kind of stoke religious commitment and or they're made up of these small passages that are either read daily, weekly, monthly. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually have a, a, a feature in our religion department on Mon in Monday's issue, so people can look for that and learn all about devotionals. Great. Well, it sounds uh, it sounds like something to keep an eye out for um, as a as a trend that's continuing. Is this one of those things that ramps up as Christmas gets closer, or is it just a, a year round thing? I think it's a year round thing, and I, I think there are certain authors who do well with it. They might spin off a devotional from another hmm. uh, religious title of theirs. So we we do see these periodically. All right. Well, uh, the feature is definitely one to keep an eye out for for sure. Anything else uh, particularly noteworthy on the trade paper list or anywhere else? Yeah, over on uh, trade paper, we have a, a movie tie-in. Uh, it's Sully by Chesley Sullenberger. Not mm -hmm. really a name one can forget. He yeah. was the pilot who in 2007, I believe, uh, landed the plane safely on the Hudson River. Right. Which I actually saw out the window of my office at the wow. time. Wow pretty crazy. Um, That's amazing. And obviously the story resonated with a lot of people. Uh, the movie is out September, or, uh, second weekend of September, uh, starring Tom Hanks as Captain Sullenberger. Uh, this book actually came out several years ago and sold upwards of 100,000 copies in hardcover. So this week it's number 14 in trade paper, 6,000 sold. So, you know, a little bit of interest there and it seems to be building as we get closer to the movie release. Great. Well, thank you for uh, coming on the show and giving us the rundown. My pleasure. Always nice to have you. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jacqueline Woodson takes us back to 1970s Bushwick, Brooklyn. We'll be right back. I'm Ed Yong, author of I Contain Multitudes, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Jacqueline Woodson on the line. Her new book is Another Brooklyn. Jackie, I'm so glad you could join us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So give us an overview of this book, which is your first book for adults in a couple of decades. It is. Um, um, Another Brooklyn is a novel. I decided I wanted to um, step away from the world of young adult and children's literature just for a minute, because I'm going right back, and um, do something different after writing my memoir, I wanted to go back to fiction and I wanted to revisit the place I grew up in, but through fiction. 
Um, so this is a time and place that you were very familiar with, uh, Brooklyn in the 1970s and specifically the Bushwick area, um, which my partner always insists on calling Bushwick, like Greenwich. Um, <laughs> so if I say it that way, it's just, uh, it's an old habit. So tell us a little bit about Bushwick and especially in that era. Um, well, Bushwick was, I, I visited a little bit, well, a lot, I guess, in Brown Girl Dreaming. And it's a neighborhood, when I moved there, it was on the edge of white flight. White folks were moving out and moving to places like Long Island and upstate and Queens and um, Westchester and black and Latino people were moving in. And um, and so the neighborhood was changing. And it was a neighborhood that was thriving. It was... um it was my home. It was exciting. It had, there was a lot of stuff going on. And I think to the outside gaze, to the people who didn't live there, it was, of course, a called a ghetto, a slum, mm-hmm. eventually the inner city. Um, but that's about how people who didn't know it saw it. And now the, na- the neighborhood has since shifted again. And um, black and Latino people have gotten pushed out or they've moved out and white folks are moving back in because now it's a hipster, cool neighborhood. So I was really interesting and kind of interested in chronicling the place as I knew it as a child and putting that on the map and in the world because I think it kind of wasn't known in a bigger world. And um and I also wanted to pay homage to it. I wanted to, I opened the book with saying, this is for Bushwick 1970 to 1990 in memory to show that it's a place that doesn't exist as it once existed, which is heartbreaking when you look back on the history of places and know that the moments um, aren't always going to be there and the places aren't always going to exist as they exist, but I didn't want it to be forgotten. I have a a very similar feeling. I also grew up in New York in the 1970s and 80s, and uh, the places where I spent time just aren't there anymore. I I could I could make a very similar dedication to the the Far West Village. Oh know, yeah. To to before it was the Meatpacking District, um, oh, man. and it's so different now. It's mm-hmm. so different. These places really do. They sometimes almost do feel like we made them up. It's so true. I remember in the West Village when it was all. The only thing I knew there was Cafe Florent, mm-hmm. because it was the place we went to after we left the club. <laughs> yeah. But it, and a whole lot of um, places. And Chelsea the same way. I mean, Chelsea Absolutely. was not a place that it is now. Um, and, you know, I think um, there is something to those places that is really important. Um, and that there is this way in which I feel like places can become really homogenous without a story very quickly. Yes. And uh, right now there's a lot of talk about the 25th anniversary of the Crown Heights riots, which is sort of slightly after or toward the tail end of the the time that you're writing about in another Brooklyn, but feels like it was part of the same era, these these Mm -hmm. times of changing neighborhood boundaries and clashes Mm -hmm. between groups. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the Crown Heights riots were two groups of people who actually had been coexisting for a long time. It was the um, Orthodox Jewish people and the um, Caribbean folks, and Caribbean and African-American. And those two communities um, were very much right next to each other and intersected. I have a really wild story about that because the Orthodox Jewish community is very Orthodox, mm-hmm. right? Um, um and I wrote a book called If You Come Softly, and in the book, it's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, so it's a story of an African-American boy and a white Jewish girl who is secular, but, you know, grew up on the Upper West Side, um, comes from this family that's um, quote-unquote progressive in this way, but she finds out they have no black friends, and she ends up falling in love with this black guy, so all of this stuff happens, and I was at Brooklyn Book Festival, and this woman comes up to me, this young woman who was probably about 22, and and she was obviously orthodox, completely covered, and she couldn't speak, and she was holding this dog-eared copy of If You Come Softly, and she said, she could barely say it, but she said, this is my life, and then she just oh. started crying, and I signed the book for her, and she, she told me she had fallen in love with a Jamaican guy in Crown Heights, because, I mean, when you see this community, people are really basically living on top of each mm-hmm. other, the two communities. And um, her parents sent her away. 
And so she got sent somewhere up in the Bronx and she never saw him again, but she choked the story out and then just disappeared in the crowd. It was something I had never imagined that these two groups would intersect. And then you think, of course they would because of the young people. So it made sense that even though we tried to kind of be apart from each other in ways, it's not always realistic. And um, being sent away by one's parents is sort of this overarching, always present threat uh, in another Brooklyn, particularly there's a young woman who gets pregnant and is sent down south and everybody, uh, you say, we, we all we all buttoned our blouses because everybody else fears the same fate. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that, that atmosphere. About that atmosphere of being afraid of getting pregnant? <laughs> uh, being afraid of getting pregnant and also just, um, I guess, the sense of of parental discipline maintained by any means necessary. Yeah. In another Brooklyn, it was so much about the upward mo- mobility and the hope for the young girls, right? Um, and one of the biggest threats to teenage girlhood is that threat of getting pregnant and your future kind of ending or changing dramatically because now you have this choice. Do you have the baby? Do you not have the baby? Um, are you a teenage mom? Uh, like, So how limited are your choices once that happens? So especially for these four girls, that was kind of like the ultimate end of a teenage life to get pregnant. And I remember as a kid, as a young person, um, being told by my mom, you better not get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And and just kind of in the same way we talk about talking to our black sons about, you know, not running in white neighborhoods. We talk to our daughters, don't get pregnant. And, and that's not to say, of course, you can't have sex. I mean, I, that's not what I heard. But, um, but that, you know, your future is important to you and, and keep moving toward it. But in, in this society, because people are young and because teenagers or teenagers, there is that threat that sadly is too often only the girl's burden because she's the one who's carrying the baby and has to make these choices and and continue in her life. And August uh, was the, the main character of the book. Uh, her her life, like the, the book is sort of bookended by her parents in, in a way. Um, at one end, her mother dies and the other end, her father dies. And um, and these are such significant moments in her life. Tell us a little bit more about those relationships that she has with her parents and with the loss of them. So the book, is, what August says again and again in the book is that this is memory. So it opens from a place of her looking back and and being aware that she is looking back and once you get into the book and you see what she's experiencing and what she's saying, you realize that she's not quite so aware of where she is in place and time in terms of what's happening, what's happened to her mother. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an elegy. It's kind of this child going through her own mourning as an adult. Um, and it's about those parental relationships. Her dad was their main, was her main caregiver because he brought, August and her brother from Tennessee to Brooklyn and raised them and was very protective of them um, and did everything he could to keep them safe. So August was um, raised in this environment where someone was trying to protect her, but she wasn't always protective because of the environment she was raised in. Um, And it is about her looking back with that longing and coming to understand in the way that we do come to understand our backstories once we get to be adults and look back and say, oh, that's what was going on there. Oh, mm-hmm. I get this now. And so there is this melancholy to her um, coming to that understanding. And when I when I was first sort of getting a sense of the book, uh, the the absence of the mother um, and later the, the presence of the father's uh, new girlfriend who introduces him to a new religion, um, it, it all felt like a fairy tale in a way, you know, the, the absent mother, the stepmother. Um, was that a, a sort of deliberate intention um, that, that parallel to fairy tales? No, you know, I always think that we... Sometimes the story knows more than you do about what it's trying to say, right? You're writing one thing and then all these other things happen, start happening. And I do think that in terms of, um, 
the um, the melody of the story, the way the story is tell, told, is the same way in which a fairy tale is told, and that kind of lulling, everything's going to be okay, in the end, everybody lives happily ever after. And that comes through the repetition, that comes through the way the story is written, and so, and of course, fairy tales are one of the first ways I learned to tell stories, so of course it would, and, um, it would come out in the way I write, <laughs> you know, all of those ways you learn to t- to write kind of stay with you, or they stay with me. Tell me a little bit more about that, that history with you and fairy tales. I, I Fairy tales were what we were first introduced to as kids. They were what our teachers read us, they were what my mom read us, and they were the stories that people knew by heart. Um, so you you begin with that kind of story of the happily ever after where everyone feels safe. Of course, we know that that's not what the Brothers Grimm intended with fairy tales. They were right. supposed to be lessons on um, on how kids can get in a lot, you know, think really bad things can happen if you don't do the right thing. But by the time they got to me, they were pretty watered down. And so for me, it was about the happily ever after and the rhythm of it and knowing that I could hear this story a hundred times and know in the end, the slipper is going to fit Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty is going to be woken with a kiss. And, and that's all, that's going to stay constant. And, um, so then when I moved to realistic fiction and I, I talk about the first story I read was, um, the little match girl when there wasn't a happy ending mm-hmm. and I was devastated. I'm like, no, no, this is not how the story's supposed to end. <laughs> you know, in the end, she's supposed to get rich and she's supposed to have a home and she's supposed to live happily ever after. And then that doesn't happen. So you end up um, writing these stories uh, where they, maybe the happy ending is a little ambiguous, but it's but it's there. There's some some hope and some promise. Yeah, there has. I think there has to be hope somewhere in the narrative. I don't think the happiness has to come at the end, but there definitely has to be um, a place where the reader wants to keep moving forward. And really, what what I hope a good story does is changes a reader and and helps show them empathy. Um, mm. You know, the, they fall in love with the characters and then they want to do whatever they can to make sure those characters turn up okay. And if the characters don't turn out okay, they want to make sure whatever happened doesn't happen to someone else. So um, returning to August, she also hears a lot of these stories, which are more like the, the warning kinds of stories, um, and, you know, about predatory men, about not being able to trust other girls. Uh, how does she navigate that and find that hope for herself? She finds it through her friends um, and she finds it through her own ambition. You know, her she talks about her friends that were Basically, they just leaned into each other. And um, at one point I write that um, boys didn't understand girls alone. Um, girls together, they understood girls alone, wrapping their arms across their chest to hide themselves. And, and so with her girls, they kind of create this human shield against the world. And if this is another Brooklyn, what was the first? It depends on how you read it, um, you know, and it could have been the Bushwick um, that the uh, guess is looking back on. It could be the place that the girls want to get out of, um, that that place that they want to move toward. It could be um, Tennessee. It could be um, just going from childhood to young adulthood to adulthood. So, but it it really depends on the reader's interpretation. I have my ideas of what it is, but I want the reader to come to their own. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn. Um, So as we mentioned, you're best known for your books for children and your memoir, which won the National Book Award. What brought you 
back to writing for adults beyond I mean you said that you wanted to to just take a little break and and shift around a little bit um but what led you specifically in this direction one thing that you're able to do that I'm I feel more comfortable doing when I'm writing from an adult perspective is playing with time and I feel like I always want to push the boundaries in my writing I always want to discover something new about my work and I do that by writing different stuff. You know, I, I wrote Brown Girl and Dreaming in verse. I didn't want to write just a straight narrative memoir because I knew that's not how memory comes to us. It comes to us in these small moments with all of this white space around it. And I knew with another Brooklyn, I wanted to um, kind of bridge um, the world between poetry and narrative. And so, and I wanted to play with time. I wanted to have an adult perspective, which you can't have in young people's literature because young people aren't adults yet. So the person telling the story is someone young and they're not looking back from an adult perspective. So I, I really wanted to start from there. I wanted August to be grown and I wanted her to be able to look back on her life. Um, you mentioned verse. Tell us a little bit about poetry. You're the Young People's Poet Laureate, and you've said that um, one of the things you love about that is getting to pretty much define it. So so mm-hmm. what, is, what does that mean to you? It means that I can choose my platform. It means I can spend a lot of time with poetry and talking to young people about poetry. My platform is um, really trying to work with underserved kids, um, especially in rural areas where kids have never met an author, think they've never met a poet, and bring to them the accessibility of both poetry and their own ability to speak and write and read poetry. So um, this fall, I've gone to a couple of places, but this fall I'm returning to some parts of rural Mississippi and Tennessee. I'm going back down south and um, and just talking to young people about the gospel of poetry. It, accessibility and poetry aren't words that you hear together very often. Yeah, and I think that's a problem. I think a lot of us growing up thinking that poetry is not for us, and 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 I think that's wrong. I think that um, even me growing up, it wasn't until I came across poets like Langston Hughes and Nikki Giovanni and um, Maya Angelou and even Robert Frost that I really started understanding that poetry was a language I could speak to. But um, but until then, it was this idea that it was kind of this, I don't know if it's upper class, but it's, it's, it's this way in which we were fed it that made me think, you know, I'm, I'm not the one who's going to grow up to be the poet. That's, that's for somebody else. And I'm sure you had some some image of who the somebody else might be, yeah, and yeah, they didn't um, look like someone you. Someone who was not a person of color, someone who was not female. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's interesting because I don't know how these those messages got to me as a young girl in Bushwick, you know, um, because even in grade school, that's not, you know, I'm sure the teacher wasn't putting those poems in front of us, so. How 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 did that message kind of seep into our heads that poetry wasn't for us? I, I don't know, but but is it is it that um, insidious and and um, pervasive that some you know um, working class poor black kids and Latino kids in Bushwick knew that this wasn't theirs? So, however it happened, I am on a mission to stop it from happening. <laughs> Do you find that with the kids that you work with that you go in and they've already got this idea poetry is not for me? No, thankfully, because of hip hop. Uh-huh. You know, the fact that they recognize hip hop as a form of poetry and spoken word as a form of poetry. Um, and because some of the and because even the po- poets who are writing their poems down, the, more of that is getting shared in schools because of National Poetry Month and poems in your pocket, all of that. And, you know, Sharon Creech's um, love that dog. Like there are all these ways in which kids are suddenly realizing that now this is this is theirs too. So, what do you do to work with these kids and help them uh, access their own poetic voices? We talk about things that happen in their life and everything from getting out of bed to brushing their teeth to having pizza for dinner and how those small moments matter because they're part of a greater 
um, moment and a bigger life. And, and, and I get them to write down what matters to them and who they love and what they see and what they think about. And, and they start realizing, wait, this is my voice. Like these things that are happening to me are informing my voice in the world. And, and they get really excited. I mean, kids love telling stories. They mm-hmm. love, um, not necessarily writing things down because they're all always a whole bunch of reluctant writers. And, and it's not that they're reluctant to tell the story. They just don't want to write. The physical act of writing is not exciting to them. Whereas me as a kid, I love the physical act of writing. I love making letters and words and sentences. So um, I think that's where it gets to be the hardest is helping them love the physical act of writing and showing them how magic it could be to put three words on a line and have 10 people interpret those three words differently. And, you know, to have a whole discussion come out of a a haiku or have a whole discussion come out of two rhyming lines or, um, or a piece of spoken word that they've stood up in front of the class and said, when you talk about the physical act of writing, um, that can mean so many things. It can mean holding a pen. It can mean typing. It can mean spray painting graffiti. Um, mm-hmm. do you, do you find that different media kind of help them to, to access that physicality of writing? You know, it's hard because a lot of the kids I'm speaking to, they only have access to one form, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have computers. They don't have iPads. They don't have phones. They, um, they have pen and paper. Sometimes they have chalk and we go outside and write stuff on the sidewalk. But, um, um, so they do have that. They do have pen and paper or pencil and paper. And, um, and I do allow them sometimes to talk to them about drawing their stories because I know we're not all going to be writers. And then, um, shaping poems from the illustrations. But yeah, we have, we have to, I, I tend to make no assumptions when I walk into a room. I always talk about how you don't even assume, you, you know, you can't say, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Because you can't even assume some of these kids have eaten, uh, you know, or, right. or, you know, what do you have on the wall in your bedroom? It's like, what if their bedroom is, um, a couch in a living room mm-hmm. or a mat in a, in a foster home or a shelter? Like, so I, I always start from very, very basic places, and I always make sure that pencil and paper has been supplied because I don't even want to assume kids have that. Right. And uh, thinking about illustrations, I've seen some poetic graphic novels coming coming down the pike recently, and uh, it fascinates me, the idea of the interplay of um, the the comic form or the graphic novel form where, where each picture is its own sort of miniature poem and they're all pulled together um, to form a narrative uh, and then layering textual poetry on that or, or connecting the two. Is that, is that something that you've worked with or that these kids have come up with on their own? Um, kids definitely come up with it. I'll put two kids together and have them work together and they'll come up with it. And also because you think um, they're living in an age with, not a whole lot of words on the page. Um, so they are thinking in, in short spurts. Um, and, and it does make total sense that that's what it would begin to look like. So yeah, I have seen that. It sounds like so much fun and so, um, personally inspiring, not in that, um, not in that trite way, way. <laughs> you know, but um, not in that, oh, you know, these poor children, their stories of poverty are so inspiring. But in the, in the sense of, of watching them light up, watching them make these connections in their, in their heads um, and, and start to put words onto paper. And the fact is, you know, that I think for me, it's so exciting. I just had, I used to teach at a, um, a writing camp that the National Book Foundation did for underserved kids. And um, one of my students just published a book, and you know, and and I'm like, it's so easy to look at young people and see their invisibility, right? <laughs> and to mm-hmm. just see them as these young people in this one moment of time. But when I walk into a, a room with young people, I'm like, they can be anybody, you know. What is what is this going to look like 15, 20 years from now? You know, even the 
scruffiest, little ashiest, you know, <laughs> a most neglected looking kid can grow up to be anybody. I mean, so many of these jobs have not even been invented yet and maybe they'll invent them. So, so I definitely come at them from this place of, I love them. I mean, I just think you guys are our future. You are the ones who are going to go out there and change the world. So like, let me ha you know, here are some shoulders, stand on them. Let me give you everything I have because, because you're going to take it and run. And also coming at it from that place of me having grown up, never having met a writer. And until I was in 11th grade and I met Betty Thomas and how I remember my high school had this picture and all you see, you see him um, autographing all these books and you just see my brown hand on his shoulder. And I so remember being like, I'm touching a writer. I'm touching a writer. Wow. You know, because I wanted it so much. And I just think, these young people, it's the same thing, you know, they're hungry and they're hungry to be seen and they're hungry to be heard and they're hungry to put their stories in the world. And, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to be a part of that. So obviously working with kids is incredibly important to you. Is it, um, as you're, as you're touring and so forth to support this book for adults, does it feel like a break or are you just really impatient to get back to the kids? Oh, you know, the kids show up. It's so funny because <laughs> I haven't been on this tour. I haven't been a single place where some of my fans haven't shown up. And it's funny because I, I keep, uh, I just met this kid, Isaac, who's this, um, you know, he's this little redhead boy with glasses. And um, and he was so sweet, he, he, you know, with that kind of eternal blush of the really pale kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he had his copy of Brown Girl Dreaming. And he had... Um, he, he, you know, he was sitting in the front row. Everyone was there. So many people were there to hear another Brooklyn, but there were also a lot of librarians and teachers there. And he came up afterwards and he had read it for his, um, it had been his summer reading, but he said afterwards he didn't want to read anything else because he loved it so much. And it was just so great. And then I was in DC. No, I was in Boston and this kid had made his dad drive him an hour and 40 minutes from, um, from Maine to hear me read. And he was another, I think he was a nine-year-old boy, and I was just like, "Wow!" I'm, I'm so even as I'm touring for another Brooklyn, the minute I see young people in the audience, it changes what parts of the book I'll read, sure, and how I'm going to talk about stuff. But I'm just as happy to have them in the room as I am to have the adults. So, how have the first couple of weeks of publication been for you? How's how's the launch gone? It's gone well. You know, it's a bestseller, which is surprising. It was a number one indie pick, which was surprising. I'm always so surprised when people love it. I mean, I know I love it because I've poured my soul into it, but I'm I'm always excited when other people get it too and and um and understand what I'm trying to say. So it's it's I'm I'm grateful. It's going really well. So uh, you said you're going back to the South uh, to do more poetry, education for kids. What else is on your agenda as the touring kind of winds down? The touring hasn't started yet. Uh -huh. <laughs> Isn't that so scary? It doesn't really start in full till, um the beginning of September. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, uh, I don't know. I, I hope to go back to writing. I mean, I haven't completely stopped, but I definitely feel distracted. So I, I'm um, hoping to get back and start writing for young people again. Well, I'm sure that something you see or hear will spark a story. It sounds like that, that always comes along sooner or later. Oh, definitely. I've been talking with Jacqueline Woodson. You can find her book, Another Brooklyn, in stores right now. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. Oh, thanks for your great questions and for having me. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about ranking global publishers by revenue. Stay tuned. Yo, yo, what's up? I'm Daryl McDaniels, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Rah! I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us about the world's largest publisher in terms of revenue at the very least. Hi, Jim. Hello, Rose. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Good. So tell us what, what, the, what the news is for... This is uh, the 2015 
rankings the top publishers in the world by revenue. Right. Yes, indeed. Uh, this is, I believe, our ninth time we've been doing it. We do it in um, collaboration with some of the other uh, publishing trade magazines, uh, mostly in Europe. And there's no surprise who the number one publisher is, because it has been for at least the last five years, and that's Pearson. Mm-hmm. You know, they are based in the UK, and they are the, a very large educational publisher uh, with extensive holdings over in the US. So even with things like the Penguin Random House merger, that, that wasn't enough to push them up to the top? Now, Penguin Random uh, it was number five. We can mm-hmm. talk about that in a second. But the interesting thing with Pearson is, as we just said, they're the largest publisher in the world and the largest educational publisher, but they didn't have a really great uh, 2015. Uh, sales went down because of you know the change that technology is bringing to education all over the world. And as well as, you know, different impacts on economies and that sort of thing. So at the beginning of this year, they announced that they were cutting 4,000 jobs uh, mm. across the globe to try to give a more unified approach to, the, to their operations. And their sales were down a bit. I mean, they were still over six and a half billion dollars. So right. we're so not, we're not, not crying for them, but it does, you know, it points out that, you know, just because you're big doesn't mean you're immune to uh, the changes that are you know, affecting all areas of publishing. So there, there's no publishing business that's too big to fail. Uh, <laughs> no, there isn't. That That is for sure. So who else is uh, in the, the top positions on the list? How long is the list? It's, well, <laughs> oddly enough, this year it's 52. Uh, last year it was 57. Mm-hmm. And it varies because you have to have at least $175 million in sales to make the list. Sometimes people fall off it because of that. And we get new people coming on and off because some of it has to do with uh, reports from different countries. Now, mm. for instance, this year there's five Chinese publishers on the list. Um, last year we had four. That was the first time the Chinese publishers had made, had made the ranking because up till then they hadn't really supplied us with financial information that they could really verify and that was um, – given to us in a in a style and a method that made sense. Right. But now a number of these are public and they have public documents. So uh, there's a little bit more transparency. So that does cause some fluctuations within uh, the number that we do. But it also, it's, it's broadened who we can cover nowadays. Uh, like I said, now we have five Chinese publishers. And uh, let's see... Uh, Two of them are in the top 10. The China South Publishing and Media Group is uh, number six, and Phoenix Publishing and Media Company is number seven. So, you know, they're, uh, they're quite formidable. And uh, what about names that our uh, American listeners might recognize? <laughs> I, I was wondering when you were going to go there. Well, Rose. you know, we, we have a, we have all this talk lately about American exceptionalism and America being number one. And I just in case we have some listeners who are a little sad right now that we're only talking about <laughs> publishers in other countries. Um, what's what's well, happening? Well, well America. The, well, well, you know, before it's interesting what you say because. I think there is perception that the United States, especially in publishing, why wouldn't they be the world largest? But they're not. Right. Because a lot of other companies and other countries see more value in book publishing. For instance, you know, we mentioned Penguin Random House. All right. They're owned by Bertelsmann. Right. Which is, you know, based in Germany. And Bertelsmann is a real big believer in the future of book publishing, in particular trade book publishing. So they literally have put their, their money where their mouth is, and they've backed it. A lot of the other, especially publicly traded American companies, have shied away from um, trade houses and publishing in general because they don't think the profit margins are that good. Right. So, you know, it's, it's the way you view things. So um, number one, uh, in terms of the American publishers, is McGraw-Hill Education. Mm-hmm. They came in at number nine uh, with sales of about $1.8 billion. And they are, as the name implies, you know, heavily in education in both college and in Ohio. And they do have a, a pretty big professional operation, too, which sells some, some trade stuff. And actually, uh, you know, not, without going too into the weeds here, McGraw-Hill, they were part of McGraw-Hill that everybody knew, uh, which you know includes McGraw-Hill Financial. And then they got spun off. Um, and sold to a couple of private equity 
people who then split the company up a little bit and are now putting it back together and it will be a public company before the end of the year. So that's some of the, the financial uh, goings on that happened there. Sounds also, Very exciting. <laughs> well, you know, again, it, it shows you how Wall Street works, yep. shall we say. Um, John Wiley is on the list at number 11. Scholastic, uh, I think most people know, obviously, is number 12. And Harper Collins was 13. You know, and Harper is an illustration of something that's also pretty prevalent on the list and that they've, they jumped five spaces over one year, um, because of their acquisition a couple of years ago of Harlequin. Right. So we do, we see a lot of consolidation on the list. You know, Harper, as we said, went from 18 to 13 and its revenues were about 1.6 billion. So, you know, it's again, very formal in its own right. And, We've had other, the other big deal that affected the list this year, uh, without making it too complicated, Holt Sprink and another professional publisher, Springer Verlag, um, merged some of their professional holdings into a different company to, to form something called Springer Nature. And there it is. It's number 15 on our list. So this brand new company, if you will, formed out of one company putting some of their properties in, another company putting some of their properties in. And whammo, you have the 15th largest publisher with, you know, $1.6 billion in sales. That's so. very, very impressive. And I think, it, you know, anyone who's ever bought a college textbook will not be surprised that educational publishers are doing really well. That still seems to be one area where the, the markup is significant. <laughs> well, some of the publishers would dispute that, but there's no doubt that college textbooks can be expensive. But they are... You know, without diverging too far into just educational publishing, there are a lot of challenges there. You know, as we referenced with Pearson, college students are trying to figure out what they want to pay for. Mm -hmm. And college publishers are trying to figure out what the college students want to pay for. You have a huge rental market of yeah. textbooks now. Um, there's a lot of digital books, ebooks that are doing okay. Um, the college publishers are trying to sell like, management software and homework helper type of material and really trying to figure out exactly, you know, where, where their strengths lie and what the college publisher or what the college student wants. Well, it sounds like that's going to be something that keeps evolving for quite some time. Oh, I think so. It's, uh, I wouldn't want to be a college publisher now. I don't think <laughs> <laughs> trade publishers have it a lot easier. Even, even, even if, even if you were number one on that list. <laughs> well, you know, size isn't everything, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> so any other, uh, notable moves, shifts, changes, merges, splits? Um, no, again, uh, well, one thing that's actually, you know, we have the 52, and I don't know the precise number, but more than half of the companies that did hit the list, their sales were down um, compared to 2014. And again, you know, not to keep hammering away that it's, you know, it's tough out there for book publishers. It does show that, you know, the market is, you know, generally flat, um, you know, pretty much across the globe. And one reason you do have so much of these, you know, even international mergers and acquisition type of things is because the best way to grow is to buy somebody. Right. And that if you really want to get of size and get some heft, and these are some hefty companies, obviously, sure. you know, go out, go out and buy somebody. Sounds like a, a reasonable principle. Um, but, you know, even when you buy somebody, there's no guarantee that what you're buying is going to do you much good. Right. There's the... the the world is littered with mergers and acquisitions that didn't work out. But in publishing, by and large, they've worked out. But there's, there certainly have some notable failures, but uh, nothing nothing last couple of years, at least. So, yeah, I, I feel like in the last decade or so, it's really been this era of, of agglutination of all of these companies, especially buying up smaller companies and adding them as imprints, you know, not, not necessarily changing the way they're run. Like, I don't think HarperCollins has has done all that much to change how Harlequin does things. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, in, in that case, you know, Harlequin certainly exists on its own. The Harper has helped Harlequin you know, with, you know, economies of scale that you get from being part of a larger company, help sure. with the printing and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, they, they've left it alone to some degree. And, and the most notable thing, you know, Harper did, and sticking with our international theme here, Harlequin had 
a number of overseas companies that right. they use. Mills and Boone. Right. And, 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 and Germany and Japan. And they had them, you know, scattered all over the world, which pretty much, and they pretty much focused on the romance titles. Since the acquisition, Harper has rebranded those all, let's say, Harper Japan. Mm-hmm. And, and while they still do, uh, the Harlequin romance titles, now what Harper's looking to do, and they've had some success, is use these offices as launch pads for commercial fiction authors. Karen Slaughter, they've had some success with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they're looking to, to increase. And that was really one of the, uh, the easiest synergy things that has actually, you know, come out of that merger. Well, it sounds like um, this will be a list to keep an eye on. And uh, do do you have any predictions for next year, or we're just going to wait and see? <laughs> uh, uh, I think Pearson will be number one. But you know, it's it's funny because you know, we do it every year, um, and it's always one of our most popular uh, pieces of that on the website. It gets you know lots of hits, and you know people are, I guess always want to know who's number one. Sure, and the, and they want those hard numbers too. I think it's rare that you see these very public rankings by revenue. I don't, I don't right. know. Right. It is tight. Yeah, it's very difficult. Thing. Yeah. I'm glad all I have to do is take a look at it and don't have to compile it. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Jim. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have you back next year to tell us whether Pearson stole the top of the list. <laughs> all righty. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Gretchen Bakke, author of The Grid, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 